Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the internet. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) This week on The Pleasure Podcast, we welcome radio producer, presenter and writer Amrit Matharu. Currently, she's an assistant producer on the Asian Network, and she's known for discussing taboo subjects such as sexuality, a subject rarely discussed within the Asian community. She's passionate about promoting body confidence and works as both a body positive activist and plus size model. We talked to Amrit about her Sikh background, growing up in the only Asian family in her school in Northampton, and how her parents' values have impacted on her own relationship with romance and sex. Like, there's a lot of undoing. When I have to look at relationships and sex, like, I have to do a lot of undoing in my head to the way that I was brought up and how the wider community look at stuff. That was just one thing that was never really ever... I guess, spoken about. So I think it just affects how I look at stuff now. Could you describe a bit for me what yeah. your family's like? like oh what... my God, so we're nuts, basically. <laughs> if you imagine, like my ideal kind of Friday night in would be sat around the coffee table, just like how we are now at my family, my parents' house. You know, my dad would crack open a bottle of whatever's going that evening. But like we'll just sit down together, we're really open. I don't really have to keep anything secret from my family, um, apart from talking about relationships. Now I think I'm older and I think I do, like the other week, uh, I explained quite publicly in front of all of my family to my auntie what a dick pic is. And she was astonished. How did that even come up in conversation? Because, right, let me take you back to a wedding that I was at. My mum and my auntie sat together, oh, that boy, did you see him? He was really nice. And I was like, really? Do you think so? But, mm. They were like, why? Why don't you think so? And I was like, oh, he sends somebody that I know dick pics. And they were like, what? what's that? And I was like, you know when you send a picture of your dick to another girl? And they were like, oh my God, this is a thing. Like, why would anyone want to do that? And I was like, yeah. So the boys that you think are cool and really nice and lovely are not. But now we say it as a joke because it's so funny. Hang on, I'm like, what, what, what? Who says dick pic in your family? Um, me, my cousins, we just say it to the mums on purpose, like now, because it's really funny and makes them uncomfortable. You're really shocked. I am super shocked. <laughs> I, my family's, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Bargy on the Beach, yeah. but literally, it's about a whole Asian family going to the seaside and being horribly shocked by virtually anything that's happening. <laughs> Any kind of physical display of affection, uh-huh. let alone saying words like that. I wouldn't even drink in front of my family. I mean, I, I was amazed to hear that you would actually sit down with your family and drink alcohol. Um, so yeah, I can, I can, I'm quite shocked and taken aback by that, but also that's really fabulous that you feel able to do that. And you're from a, is it a Sikh family background? That's right. Yeah. But I'm just wondering where the idea that you're sort of country from, Anand, is sort of almost quite buttoned up, quite prim and proper 
um, sort of attitude has come from. So I studied English language and literature at uni and had to study a lot of like Victorian literature and stuff and a lot of the themes and the prudish nature of sex and you know men and women and all of that stuff resonated with me a lot because it's very similar to how I guess Asian culture being Gujarati you know Muslim Sikh whatever you know whatever culture you're from uh, it was just all pretty much very much the same it's like oh yeah having babies uh, is one thing and you know we don't touch each other we don't you know don't, you know it just doesn't get spoken of like and if it happens it's after hours and no one sees. I don't know how much the influence of Victorian England colonizing an area and imposing Christian values or it, it probably did because before that I mean, Indians, they invented the Kama Sutra, didn't they? And I think it's interesting when you have um, Asians or any group coming from another country or another culture. My parents got to the UK in, in, in the early 1970s. You know, my dad couldn't get a job in a bank, which is what he's working as in Kenya, because he was Asian. But actually that sense of his Victorian values, I think were instilled in him quite early. And my mum went to a school with um, British missionary nuns. So her English is cut glass 1950s but also some of her beliefs were cut glass 1950s. And I think she brought that with her. And were you in Northampton? Yeah, so I've just always been there. My family have lived there for like donkey years. So I've been to Northampton as an actor. Oh, the Royal Diangate Theatre? That's it, that's the one beautiful little chocolate box theatre. But yes, extremely white area, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think I remember at school, I think some of the earliest memories of like what perhaps relationships or from boyfriends all that kind of stuff was like being like lower school now I went to a Church of England school as well and I'm naturally kids are going to play around in the in the playground and we used to have like hold weddings and I would always be so scared that I'd have to marry someone because I was like oh my god this is not what we do so I'd be like are we the vicar are we the, you know <laughs> to get out of any sort of embarrassing awkward situation that I just didn't want to be in or you know have to go home and tell mum and dad oh I played you know, wife today in the playground. Like, I just thought it was weird. Like, today I'm married, yeah. seven children. And, and then another sort of layer to it was, I always thought, oh, no one would want me to be their wife because I was a brown kid, the only brown kid. Do you know what I mean? Um, but then, then there was like things like playing kiss chase and stuff like that. And I just remember being really sort of, not horrified, that's not the word, but just really shy and embarrassed to sort of take part in it. So I'd always make sure I ran extra fast so that no one would get me. As I got older, the way I was able to kind of realise what goes on and learn about kind of relationships was through reading because that was because you can watch TV and stuff, but you're often, you know, as a child, you're sat with your family watching TV around the, and those scenes always get turned over, don't they? Um, but when you're reading a book, it's you and the relationship between what's going on with the characters and how you perceive everything in your head. Books like uh, Jacqueline Wilson, like, you know, how the girl fancies a boy at school and all this, that and the other happens. And I was like, oh, right, but all these characters are not Asian, not Punjabi, not girls that are going through the same thing as me. Uh, and then I kind of discovered these books by, I don't know if anyone's heard of an author called Bally Rye. No. So Bally wrote similarly like teenage fiction books, but all the characters, of course, were Asian. And they were all having secret boyfriends and secret girlfriends and, you know, escaping arranged marriages. And, and I was like, oh, my God, this is like, this is my culture. This is me. This is what I get. Uh, and these kids have boyfriends and girlfriends. I was like, oh, my God. So I can have one. Like, do you know what I mean? That's how I kind of forged this idea that I'm not just the ugly brown kid at school. It's interesting how if you are not based in, an, uh, in a situation where you feel comfortable with discussing sex and relationships or even you know, playing kiss chase or whatever that is that the only way you can access uh, the idea of relationships or romance are through these sort of chiclet novels or yeah. which I adore 
And actually, that's how I felt. I approached a lot of literature. I mean, first it was fantasy novels, but then I, I'm a big fan of Jilly Cooper books. I do like the sort of strain of, there's some morality actually in a Jilly Cooper novel, there, which I think it really appeals to most people, but also particularly sort of British Asians like a sort of morality tale uh, and a comeuppance when someone yeah. has behaved appropriately or not appropriately. Um, but also um, the, the sense of not being represented, I also saw in television. You know, if I was watching TV, I think I graduated towards sort of appreciating black culture. I mean, how did you feel growing up in Northampton? You, you mentioned that you were the only Asian kid you knew? Yeah, so at school, I think I was, it was me, my cousin and sister. And I think we're the only sort of brown ethnic children. I think I just kind of got used to it. I kind of wore it on my sleeve a little. Like, you know, yeah, I'm a brown kid. And if it was ever like a festival of like Diwali or something, I'd be the first one up there to go and talk about it. It was nice because people wanted to learn. I don't think I ever really faced any racism or anything like that. It was just kind of being the token brown kid, which which I took quite lightly. As a teenager, did you find that there were, were any uh, differences between your family's culture and then what society and your mates were doing? I think I was always a bit, um, oh my God, I don't want to be the naughty girl that becomes like gossip in the community. Like, so yeah, naturally, as I started to go to like middle school, secondary school, that kind of thing, I remember, I think my friend was like 13 or something, and she was saying that she's going to go and have sex with this guy that she knew, like, you know, from her estate or whatever. And I was like, horrified to think that a kid is even going to go and do this but then I was like oh this is what's going on I was like well it's not me I'm not I'm not ready to be doing this but it's almost like I friend zoned any boy that I was ever like mates with just because I had this little thing in the back of my head of like what my family would think so if I did fancy someone I'd find it terribly awkward to just how do I make myself look cool in front of this person but not be an absolute dork? And I think that really um, affected how I kind of spoke to guys that I was interested in and stopped doing it. And then that's probably why I've ah. been single the whole of my life. Do you think that's partly culturally based or is that just, just the way that you are? I think it's deeply rooted in how I was kind of brought up and to think about relationships. And I don't think that's uncommon for many Asian girls, actually. Um, or boys, perhaps. I was wondering whether you feel like you would have been brought up differently as a boy. I'm not sure. You know, I was sneaking out to clubs when I was 15 with my parents' permission. Like, it was all pretty cool. I think there's a... Well, and certainly we had a very big difference in terms of how boys and girls were treated in my family. Mm. I mean, my name, Anand, means um, happiness or a state of happiness. So my grandmother, I was the first boy born to us, all the kids. And so she's running around the house going, Anandama, which means in a state of happiness. Mm. So I get called happiness. Then my brother's born, second boy in the entire family. Um, and so Ashivad, she says, which is blessings from heaven. So he's called blessings. And it's all based on the fact that we're boys. And whenever, for example, I wanted anything, I would get it in an instant. But I really recognised the disparity between how men and women were treated. Uh, women would eat second. And yeah, men and yeah. Kids... That's all quite normal. Like in my house, like when my mum is making food, she'll make sure everybody's fed before, before us. Like the elder grandparents are fed, then that goes to my dad. Then us kids will get given food and she'll eat last. Hmm. My mother would always have the seconds. So she would have had yesterday's food. She wouldn't have fresh. And it was really... Odds. I was thinking, Mum, you've made all this food. There's masses. Look how fat we all are. It's not as if we're running out of food anytime soon. But you know, because I mean, Asians often, like, like lots of people, show affection through food. Mm. Um, but I do feel the difference of my cousins, all the girls who had to be behaved all the time, had to look pretty all the time, but never sexually available. They had to save their virginity. I mean, I don't know what it's like in in your community about that. It's all very much the same. Yeah, you know, I remember 
I remember just going to uni and my mum being like, going to uni clean and you're coming back clean. <laughs> what does this mean? But I knew what she meant. She's like, I'm assuming you're a virgin now and you're coming back one, like don't fuck about. And then I think that just really, like, again, just fucked me up and really stayed with me whilst I was at uni. Well, it's and like boys word. were like the last thing I used yeah. to think about at uni. I, I li- honestly, I, I don't regret my uni experience, but I do regret that one thing that I didn't really allow myself to get into a relationship with people. Like, yeah, sure, I met guys and I had some fun with them, whatever. But it's not like I allowed myself to get emotionally attached to anyone like it was like okay hi yep great fun met you now bye it's a powerful word clean isn't it yeah and i think it's very much uh in the asian culture that's a thing i don't think it's the pressure is put so much on guys you know but for a girl to be like a unmarried woman who's had sex it's like terrible isn't it mm-hmm. it's just the worst thing ever it's like how could ever anyone ever want to marry you and had you been taught that you should be a virgin? I was never taught it, but it's almost like the the known of the unknown, isn't it? Like, it's just what you know. I think it's like the unspoken rule. It's a bit different, but I remember my best friend's mum at school saying to her, yeah, you can, you can, you know, have a boyfriend or two, but you don't want to be spoiled goods for when you have your husband. So... Spoiled goods, like rotten. Again, it's that dirty analogy yeah. or, or unclean. I think it's just a very old-fashioned like notion. And I think, I think since how I believed and thought of all these things post-uni uh, has changed a lot now, I do think my kind of generation is the generation of change. Because I always say to my family, I'm like, you lot gave us so many bloody rules as kids or whatnot. I was like, I'm not going to be like this for my kids. I was like, if my kid is gay, trans wants to date a white person from a different culture or whatever they want to do i'm here for it because i am the eldest child so i kind of follow suit of what my parents have said it's not that i'm being forced to believe these things it's just how i've been conditioned to think that way and that's that's a part of my thinking now whilst i might not agree with it i'm like 50 50 here but i'm gonna stay on this side of the 50 not that side yeah but that side of the 50, we give them to my kids and it'll be their 100 because they can do what they want. I very much get the fact that you are grounded in one background and then there is the part of you that looks outwards. You know, I knew from a very young age that it was my job to go to school. It was my job to do well. It wasn't my job to have fun. That was very clear. And I took that to heart. And, and my partner just laughs at me about how ridiculous I am. Just says, Aaron, could you just try and have some fun? And I think whilst actually I'm still quite grateful in lots of ways because I didn't put myself in harm's way in inverted commas. I feel I've kept myself safe in a lot of ways, but also I, I, I stopped myself accessing emotion. I stopped myself accessing relationships at university. And stuff. Partly that was because I was gay and I didn't want to acknowledge that. And so you thought, actually, I don't want to engage with that. So I don't, won't have a relationship. I won't, I'll, I'll be friends with everyone. But actually, you're never then able to engage. You don't grow up properly emotionally, I don't think. That takes longer to develop. The whole not having a relationship thing or letting yourself have one, I think then it really um, affects how you see relationships when you're older. So for me, a big problem, and I hold my parents accountable for this and I tell them all the time, but it's like six years ago, I passed my degree, turned 21. They're like, come on we should get you married like really? you know it's not i'm not saying that forced me or anything no, but sure. it's just the natural conversation yeah. that happens so naturally my parents have been saying that for years to me now like oh you know have you got anyone and i'm like i turn around to them and i say have i got anyone <laughs> well you're the one that told me to bloody go to uni and don't fuck about 
don't have a boyfriend, you know, don't do these things. But then all of a sudden you want me to turn around and say, I'm, I'm going to get married. So you have to magic a partner out. Yeah, where is happen? that going to happen? Yeah. It's not. So, you know, we do have all sorts of conversations like that. And I think that's, for me, that's the biggest annoyance. For my kids, I don't want them to have that. And have a boyfriend, know what a relationship is, understand what love is, and then you'll find it yourself. Was there much um, physical affection shown in the home? Within I never saw my mum and dad kiss, still haven't. Uh, I perhaps have seen them hold hands. Um, my dad's currently not too well, actually, and uh, we've been visiting him in the hospital and stuff. He's at his own now, but uh, whilst he was in the hospital, I actually saw my mum and dad perhaps, like really hold hands for a long time and like, you know, greet each other and say goodbye by holding their hands as like a really affectionate way. And I thought it was the sweetest thing ever. Uh, because it just doesn't really happen. They wouldn't ever link arms or be all, you know, like coupley or just, you know how you would be with your friends sometimes, just like snuggle up on the sofa yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Nah, never saw any of that. I didn't see my parents hug until my, in my late 30s. And even then it was a shoulder to shoulder hug. No <laughs> pelvis to pelvis hugging going on here. It's literally as far as you get to. I've never seen them hold hands. I've never seen them kiss. However, all of us kids were always hugged by everyone in the family. So we're a very tactile family, yet there's no there's sexual no tactility. There's no, no romantic, um, like, physical touching. Were they able to provide you, or was you, your mum able to give you any romantic advice? No. Okay. And do you feel now that, has anything changed? Could you go to her for romantic advice now? I really think I could if I was in the position to be in, in a relationship. I'm just not in a position to be doing that. And it also feels like you have opened them up, actually. Yeah, I, I think I think so. And I think that's that's partly a job of a child to do, to, to you know, to their parents, because... Drag them into the present day. I feel like I'm doing yeah, that with mine. Like, I, I don't know if anyone's seen, but I actually um, was asked to be a part of a, um, which has now been the shortlist for an award, yeah. a chat with my mum that, that was recorded and videoed. Can I just interject here? She's saying it's a chat. It's a BBC filmed short story. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, so it was a recorded video chat of me and my mum sat down actually having like a chat about sex and asking me if I'd had sex. I had to ask my mum, when did you first have sex? And really invasive questions about sex and relationships. And is it the first time you've the had first this time sort of ever I'd had such wow. an abrupt conversation with my mum about it? Yeah. How did it go? Um, I think like, she was very brave to just be so open to being videoed about it, let alone chat about it, and this go out to thousands of people. Um, so she was very brave, and, and she did say she did it for me. And how did it feel for you asking such intimate, direct questions? Obviously, it's like a little bit awkward, kind of like, oh God, are we really doing this? But actually, I think I, was, I, I felt quite privileged to be the person to, to just do it. And it's almost like ripping a plaster off and just getting it out of the way. By keeping this kind of hush-hush notion about it, I think it doesn't do anyone any good. So yeah. I felt quite um, glad that I could just be a person to just move that along a bit and hopefully inspire other kids to be like that with their parents. I did challenge her on a couple of things. So she was asking you questions as well? Oh yeah, it was a two-way street. Ah. Uh -huh. So the questions were about when did you lose your virginity? Yeah, and also like, you know, if someone wanted to have more than one partner and stuff like that, and the kind of her response was that, oh, yeah, that's it's a bit slaggy to be doing that. And yeah. I was like, oh, no, mum, I'll actually, if someone wanted to bang someone this night and then another person the next, the same night for all that we care. Like, that's what people do and that's their business. We can't have that, like, judgy view on them. And I think she didn't expect me to kind of be so 
you know, on that side of things and supportive. I'm really interested about, because of you, you mentioned that you had been sort of historically single and your parents keep asking you about getting married, yet they don't seem to have necessarily provided the tools of you get moving from that gap between single and married. Oh, they provide the tools, oh. Anna. They oh, provide the me, tools. There's all sorts of things going on from um, temple matrimony lists. What is being that? Being on Asian dating sites okay, and swiping it. left to right. What's My fingers have repetitive strain injury right now. And <laughs> um, what is a temple matrimony list? Oh my God, so... Uh, the amount of like old relatives that will suggest this to me. So it's basically like various temples, often temples that are in kind of more populated Asian areas will have like a, a matrimony list of young people who want to get married. Or we assume they want to get married or their parents might just, you know, shove their photo on a form and send them in. No, I, I th- I, I'm, not, I'm not giving these matrimonial services a bad name. They are like really like checked out and it's like, if you want to be there, you can do it. Yeah. And yeah, it's almost like putting your, this is a really famous phrase in, in the Asian culture of biodata. So it'll be your name, your height, your age, your birthday. Um, it's like your degree, if you've done one, your job, your weight, your height, all of this stuff that wow. is like, basically that just makes you a statistic. And you go off on a blind date almost. Yeah, but I've not had a successful one yet. Okay. <laughs> so is, 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 you've been on dates from these lists? Or? No, no, not these lists. I've had random, you know, phone calls go home to my parents and they say, oh, is your daughter ready to like get married or... But it's not, I say that as if like, oh, someone rings and I'm next, the next week I'm going to be like betrothed. It's not like that at all. It's the, basically the idea that a family vets out another family's son or daughter and uh, it's always son and daughter because let's face it, no one's so LGBT friendly in these <laughs> in these uh, methods. But they exchange details for the couple, and then the couple will get chatted on you know WhatsApp or DM each other. But yeah, it's making the introduction. And to be honest with you, I don't have an issue with that. It's virtually the same thing as joining Tinder or joining like a, an app. And there is so many like all these Asian apps now that are designed for this reason. Whether it's dating or married, there's these things in place. And is it important for you to find um, somebody Asian to be in a relationship with? I think, yeah, just because of all the stuff that we were talking about earlier. It's almost like I've accepted my fate that my parents want from me. Um, I say that, but like in a really lighthearted way. Like I just do think that that's... I'm quite happy for that to be my... uh, Once upon a time, I didn't think that was going to be what I was into. I think now, just because I don't... It wouldn't be so accepting if I... You know, said, oh, all of a sudden I'm going to get married to, you know, Mr. Jones or something like that. Like it, they'd be like, who, what, how, why? Like, yeah. you know, so that's, I think that's okay for me. And I've accepted that. There's two things I kind of want to talk about. Yeah. One is kind of the um, the top trumps of dating that you mentioned, where people's <laughs> height and weight and job title. In your dissertation, you were talking about um, sort of how are women valued? And you said um, about, is it Nisha Minas, the books that you, yes. that, that you were looking at? She presents the idea of marriage as a type of market where the female is sold like an object, product and possession. The woman is valued for her qualities, for instance, how good she was at cooking, how light was her skin tone, how tall she was, how well off were her family, how educated was she. All these attributes would be collectively added together and in not so many words, a price would be attached to her. Nisha Minas is an author who wrote these sort of romantic chick lit novels from an Asian protagonist's view. And the one of her books was called The Marriage Market. So naturally, one of the chapters in my book, which critiques these, is called The Marriage Market, looking at kind of how women are viewed as this like prize. 
is she fair skinned? Is she like, what skills does she have? Oh, How that, many there. curries can she cook? My mother was told that she was dark, too dark to ever get married by oh, her mother. These things really, really annoy me. Is and this still pervasive, this sort of attitude? Yeah, very much. And I find it when I'm on these temple matrimony lists. Okay, so I'm, I'm a, a very tall lady. I'm five foot nine. Um, so that's always quite an obstacle. And then well, the other thing that they have on these forms is your weight and your body type. It's like, I have no issue in saying that I'm a curvy, big, beautiful woman. Like, it's not a problem for me to say that. And it's just like, I know automatically what guys are going to think when they see that. Oh, she's fat, like not attractive. It's just so not like not a happy, positive process to look forward to, to like in terms of looking for a life partner. And it gets some people's mental health really down. I wanted to talk about skin colour and the importance of skin colour in the Asian community. And I mean, also, I think it's represented in the black community as well. But there is the sense of being light skinned as a very positive thing and being darker skinned as a negative. And I think that the value that people attach then to your skin colour has led to these fad for sort of skin bleaching, um, which is so prevalent it's in, in everywhere. India. Everywhere. It, it makes me really sad because it's like people are changing the bodies that they're born with. Well, it feels like an inherent part of racism, isn't it? I mean, it, it's connected with that so so very deeply. Absolutely. And I think that was very much affected my mother. Because my mother then, because she'd been told by her mother that she was too dark to get married, because she played outside a lot, she climbed trees. She was quite a tomboy when she was young. Um, that, that then affected her choice of husband. She'd maxed out my uh, grandfather's credit card when she was studying psychology in India. And she received this letter. Um, from my grandfather with a picture of my of my dad um, saying this family really likes our family and it's a real thing in Asian family it's not about necessarily about the two people getting married liking each other yeah. it's about the families being congruent and about being um, of good enough value of status or lots of different things I think oh, actually so letter arrives picture of dad you fancy getting to know this person because as you say it's not so much an arranged marriage it's more sort of an arranged meeting yeah. Um, but those days it was more an arranged marriage. Um, so mum was like, well, I've maxed out the credit cards. I'm really dark. Um, what opportunity am I going to have? So she gets married to my dad. I mean, that's true love, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, poor dad. And I think she says a lot of that, some of that in jest, but not all of it in jest. Um, and it just made me feel really sad for my mum's ability to value herself on the marriage market as being dark. Therefore, she was less attractive and, and, and of less value. God, that's made me feel slightly mournful. Mm. Yeah, no, I th that's what I mean where I said that I think things like that can be really, really hurtful to a person. And and I think a lot of the time, I know, especially a lot of like girls that I talk to and women, that they do feel like, you know, oh, it's even something silly as having curly hair. You can feel that that's not the norm. But then back to the part where I was talking about the generation of change, you're seeing so much on social media nowadays, like, of, like, brown women empowerment online and the, all these pages that are very very supportive and I think it's just saying a big F you to kind of the the way that the world would wants us to think and, and shapes how we believe you know what beauty is and how we should rate ourselves because actually no one can do that it's yourself you know you have to self-value in there. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a sense of if you move from another country or the culture to this country or any country and you are outside your normal culture, to keep it within the tribe and the sense of marrying your kind. And there's a real sense of that in Crazy Rich Asians actually. And I'm obsessed with Crazy Rich Asians as a real exploration of what it means to be Asian, but in, in the sort of pan-Asian perspective, because it is about family, it's about honor, it's about the allowance for relationships to be visible to our parents, about our parents wanting a specific person for us, because their view is uh, us choosing your partner is actually important for us you know we know better than you because we have lived through this experience of challenge and change and we're going to give you that future that we can't have yeah getting married or being in a relationship it's not just the couple's business it's everyone else's business it stands for so much more and I think that's it's a real telling of the culture in terms of like it's not just it's not a selfish thing for a couple to just go in off and there you are have your life it's actually it's the marrying of two families it's it's all of this stuff that it stands for there's much more around it isn't there yeah so much more to consider well also if you think about the obsession that people have with their heritage in terms of their dna genetic makeup how many people are doing genetic testing what a massive business that is and how people are really interested in exactly their their makeup and they also want to have a kind of a flag to put in the map and go that's well that's me that's where i'm from and i know where i'm from and these are my people and it's a very human very natural instinct i think to have that and so to marry and to procreate with people who share your genetic makeup must be like a real natural urge. I remember, so half of my family's Jewish and I remember my grandmother saying to me, (laughs) you don't marry a Jewish guy. We're not practicing by the way at all. But she would say to me, if you don't marry a Jewish man, you're contributing to the silent death of the Jews. I mean, that that kind of stuff. Very heavy. But about that kind of deep urge to of a continuation of a line just feels so powerful. I mean, you reference almost the term race traitor. And there is the sense of if you marry outside of the culture, that actually you are um, either polluting it by diluting it, or you are um, rejecting um, your background culture. I mean, and when I got together with my partner, understandably, he wanted to meet my family. And and it was initially a bit shy and a bit reticent of him meeting my larger family because my larger family is several hundred people. And so I thought, you know what, what's the easiest way to him to meet everyone in one go? Well, let's go to a small wedding. So only 250 guests. And so, a quarter of the family. A quarter of the family. So I ring my, my cousin up and I go, look, look, would you mind if I brought my male partner um, to your wedding? And she was like, oh, honey, fantastic. Anything to take away from the fact I'm marrying a black guy. (laughs) And honestly, and it was so true because actually there's a real sort of um, racism actually that is really, that actually, you know, Asian is best. White is kind of okay, but do not marry a black man. And I, I mean, I find that so distasteful, but I think that's present in lots of cultures about this sense that, you know, the same is, is good and important 
to be the same colour, the same family, the same the same race. Um, not but the same family. Well, you say not the same family. <laughs> no, no. At least they try a different village. Um, <laughs> it's definitely it's the things that you were saying about what your grandma said, and I, and I kind of resonate with that in terms of how it's perceived in our culture, and you know how I talk about it in the book as well. But even things like caste, and I have this conversation with my family a lot of the time as well in terms of. You know, so I'm expected to marry someone of the same religion, the same culture, the same caste. And in this big, big world that we live in, it can become quite difficult to find such a specific thing. I was wondering if you would tell me a little bit more about caste. So, I mean, it's a really, really ancient part of Asian culture that, you know, stems back to like, and I guess it's very similar to how in the English culture you would have such and such family that are the bakers or carpenters. And, you know, it comes comes back from your working trade and what your family and ancestors would have done. So similarly, in our culture, you have people who work with leather, you have people that cut hair, who may be barbers, carpenters, farmers, all of this kind of thing. And that's how the, the, the caste system is sort of built. And then because of that, then there becomes a hierarchy. And that's a really, really old, outdated thing that... I think, again, our our generation is that generation of change in terms of changing that mindset. But I don't speak for everyone. That's a big overgeneralisation because some people are very, very patriotic to it and mm. will only want to marry or, you know, sometimes take even as far as being friends with people of the same caste and stuff. But that is, you know, a very slim... And if you were to marry outside of your caste, you might be ostracised. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a huge thing. I mean, and and uh, you know, the Dulit caste, which is meant to be the, the untouchable caste, have such a difficult time in India still. You know, they, they, they have been given all the rights. However, they haven't been given that within the culture, if that makes sense. So you know, legally, they are of the same status, but actually not in terms of behaviour. And is that, imp- is that important to your family? I do think in terms of marriage, because I, th- I think there's a way of looking at this in, in two sort of ways. If I fell in love and was going out with somebody, which I'm currently not. So if anyone listening to this podcast <laughs> wants Jeez, to slide into bingo. my DMs, you know, feel free. <laughs> However, um, no, but if I if I had met someone and it, whoever they were, whatever, if I was genuinely happy and in love and ready to take that next step in, in my life, I think my family would just be happy for me. It wouldn't be such a, such a preference, you know, but because I'm not in that position and, and of the age to start getting married and everybody's looking and whatnot, they're looking for that one specific thing that is the same caste and same religion, the same culture that, you know, will fit in in their ideal world. But saying that, if someone comes along and that isn't doesn't fit that specific criteria, it's not, it's not going to be the end of the world. In your book, you write about Asian women, if they have had previous partners, that actually they may not be good enough or suitable for an, for an Asian, British Asian, they may have to go and search for someone back home that might be more suitable. Like there's a hierarchy again of Asians um, from England versus Asians from India or Africa. And that struck me again as just extraordinary, just about how many layers of hierarchy they're in. It's utterly exhausting. Yeah, and in the book I kind of comment on if you're a sort of a British Asian woman, you're given a bit more intelligence and sort of a say-so and, and a bit more sort of authority to yourself here because you, you have a voice. Whereas perhaps a woman from India or from whichever sort of motherland that might be, Pakistan, Bangladesh, whatever, um, 
is more sort of timid and meek and will, will follow instruction and kind of be more of that subservient housewife compared to what someone who has grown up in more of a Western world might, dare I say, use their own initiative. Like, so I can imagine <laughs> some men might find that quite desirable. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of the time, and I, I mean, I see it and I have seen it with perhaps family members or just friends that, you know, where guys have got married um, and they might have been particularly rogue in their younger younger years and to control them or just to keep them happy and get them married off, they get given a wife from back home. And I think things like that can be, like, obviously I'm imagining and hoping it's all very consensual and everything wants to happen. But actually, like, you know, that, that idea really needs undoing that, oh, they just need a wife from back home. I'm wondering why that they'd be these rogue boys who would be paired up with the women from... Because perhaps women here will see their behaviours and not want to get married to them, whereas, you know, a woman who is a lot more subservient will just do, you know, and get get married and, you know... And be grateful somehow. Absolutely, and keep up family appearances that their son is now happily married and, you know, there's going to be children and all of this stuff, whereas perhaps might not have happened so easily with a a wife that may be from the Western world. Is it part of the culture at all, this idea of um, the... So we're currently recording this in Whitechapel, and this is actually a very um, Bangladeshi area, Mm -hmm. and there's still very much a culture around these with our neighbours that we hear about where um, the women will move in with the husband's family often. And I was just wondering how how common that is just generally in, in South Asian cultures. I mean, it is quite a expected sort of thing that you would go and move to your in-laws because it, it comes back from like the olden sort of traditions of a woman would become married and, and leave her family and yeah. go to her in-laws family and become theirs. Um, you know, and there's all sorts of like folklore and, and folk tales and songs that, you know, kind of represent this and that's that, that's the culture. But actually, I think now as we just move forward with more of the Western thinking and just modernising, that that doesn't always happen, you know. I've got friends who are getting married, have been married, and then they're already discussing plans to buy their own house because they do not want to live with the in-laws, do you know what I mean? Yes. But I think it's each to their own and and however your own family set up wishes to be. Every single nation or race you know, has their own view on um, you know, the hierarchies or the, the power or the beauty or you know, arranged marriages or whatever it is. Um, yeah, so I, I don't want it to feel like you know, we're sort of just trying to make sure, God, no, aren't Asians odd? Because um, <laughs> no, no, sometimes I feel, I feel like that's, you, know, you, you sell a picture of unusualness or difference. Whereas actually, it's just all the bloody same. And we all seem to want to keep our children as safe as possible. And we want our children to thrive in, an, in a, a foreign environment. And my parents have always said to me, you know, if and when, you know, when we're thrown out of this country, you'll have something you'd fall back. I was like, when I was 20, I was going, what are you talking about, woman? <laughs> when are we going to get thrown out of this? It's all absolutely fine. But you do see the uncertainty that can rise with nationalism um, and with the, you know, the uncertainty of even Brexit, for example, with people having to, to, to you know, come back, for, be repatriated from Europe because actually their healthcare is going to run out in six months and, and they can't afford it, or be you know, removed from the UK because they don't have the right papers. And so the sense of gratitude I have to my parents for giving me the ability to be a doctor, which allows me to potentially move if I have to. And I've never considered my house as my home. It's just a place I live at the moment. 
because whilst I have that sense of security because of the you know, education I have, I don't have sort of object permanence when it comes to my home because I could be potentially asked to move at any time. So I've never grown up with thinking my home is, my, is, is the place I'll always exist in. It's my castle, it's not. It's so interesting hearing that because it so resonates with, I think, a lot of Jewish families have felt as well. Sure. Always on the move, always from a whole history of persecution, of feeling like mm. they're having to, yeah, to, to move from place to place. And which is why culture is so important because your people are your home um, as opposed to your fixed abode. And also jobs are really important. I can carry being a doctor, you can carry being a lawyer, you can carry being a goldsmith, you can carry jewellery. You know, and I, I'm not, this is not to de denigrate that at all, but of course you, know, you can carry these things. And if you can carry your wealth or you can carry your intellect anywhere, that gives you a great degree of security. Yeah. Completely, and I, don't, I think all the stuff that we're talking about in terms of the education and how we, the thinking and the mindset, I don't think, you know, when we talk about the Asian culture and it being sounding backward or they do this, they do that, to be, you know, when these, I'm not going to say rules, but when no one ever set out to be, I don't, I don't believe anyone ever set out to be sort of spiteful or create this negative view of women or perhaps, you know, outdated or old-fashioned. It's just the way things occurred along the way as as they as like like you said they just tried to protect and provide the best for their children so it's just how in those times when you have to contextualize it it was and that was the best that they thought so it's just as we move forward i think then you know this generation of change that i talk about is able to kind of unpick a little bit of what what was at one time isn't so much now and you know we need to help that society and help that community grow out of that old school type of thinking yeah with kindness and understanding yeah i think it's always down to education and let's talk more about relationships let's talk more about sex because let's face it we all need it <laughs> <laughs> you can follow amrit's life and thoughts on her blog amaretto's world and find links to her dissertation desi and desire in the show notes thank you for listening to the pleasure podcast if you enjoyed this do share review and subscribe on itunes it really does help other people find us and gives the series a boost. Give us five stars, you lovely lad. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. And Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course... Pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.